are on the line. Live on Fox Sports Central Alabama on 98.3 FM in Birmingham and Sylacauga and in Auburn on ESPN 1067 or online on foxsports983.com and ESPNAU.com. You are on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Daw. Join the show by calling in at 334-321-1390 or toll free at 888-382-7500. You're on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Dawn, ESPN 106.7 and Fox Sports Central Alabama. Happy Thursday, everybody. Happy Commitment Day. Three commitments for Auburn football in the last 24 hours. Not even. Lance, how you doing today on this Thursday afternoon? I'm doing fantastic, Noah. You know, I've, I've said on the show for about a week or so now, if I could just see that first guy come through the door, I'd be excited. But Auburn's got three now, and Auburn uh, was able to pick up My- Micah Riley Ducker, uh, obviously, last night. And then this morning, they got a uh, commitment from Caleb Wooden, the brother of former Aub- or current Auburn Tiger, uh, Colby Wooden. So a lot, of, a lot of interesting recruiting news for us to talk about today. Also, don't forget about Demetrius Robertson as well in the transfer portal, committing to play football at Auburn for this season. His last year of collegiate eligibility, the super senior, six years in college football will be what it is this season for Demetrius Robertson. A lot of news out there on the recruiting trail that probably has some folks saying our way, see, it's going to be okay, which I still think it's a little early to say that the caution sign is is completely in the rearview mirror, but definitely Auburn picking up some momentum, which is a huge positive. And let's dig in and look at what each of these commitments brings to Auburn. And we'll start with the earliest one. We'll go to back to yesterday with Michael Riley Ducker, the four-star tight end, according to Rivals, number 15 tight end in the nation, according to Rivals. Michael Riley Ducker, number three player in Nebraska, committing to Auburn yesterday at around 6.30. Yeah, and you and I were talking about yesterday about how this guy could be t- potentially used in a new scheme and in Brian Harson and Mike Bobo's new offense. And we think that he's not going to necessarily be a run blocker, although he can improve in that in that uh, category. But I think he's going to be more of a vertical pass catcher. And I don't mean vertical as in like blazing speed. I mean Auburn's probably going to be able to throw to him down the seam. They're going to get him to run a few routes. It's something that Auburn fans have not seen a whole lot of. Not a lot of traditional tight end routes and a lot of traditional tight end play calls essentially where you're just trying to get it to to that playmaker uh they didn't see it a lot under Malzahn and whenever they did it was a little gimmicky and we talked about this on yesterday's show in terms of what J.J. Begees did and what in terms of what Sh- uh, John Samuel Schenker has done up until this point this is a guy that Auburn's going to be able to put out there maybe in the slot and just and just let him have fun against a defensive back like just run him over catch a pass bully somebody uh from what you said yesterday after watching his tape he seems incredibly physical he does not shy away from contact I was I would assume he wouldn't want to at 6'6 235 and this is a Nebraska guy he is he's a homeboy he has grown up in the cornfields I do not question this guy's strength and physicality when it comes to the game at all really excited about this prospect I think he's a really good pickup you look at Brian Harson's scheme at Boise State which of course may vary a little bit from what Mike Bobo likes to do and I'm interested to see what those subtle differences are this upcoming football season but an interesting note here according to pro football Focus's preview magazine five-man protection percentage so how often in passing downs or pass plays for Boise State 
How often were they just in five-man protection? So four guys split out wide or five guys split out wide. How often did that happen last year in Boise State's offense? And believe it or not, it happened 69.8% of the time. When Boise State was throwing the football, they were in just five-man protection. And we talk about so often what that means for the tight end position now that Brian Harson is coming to Auburn. He still utilized the tight end, and I think what that's telling me there, despite the fact that he ranked inside the top 32 of teams in college football that had five-man protection last year, Michael Riley Ducker fits this prototypical Brian Harson tight end and the modern-day tight end that a lot of times you see used in the big slot. A lot of times you see them not necessarily attached to the line of scrimmage, and that's what you could see here with Michael Riley Ducker. And from the tape and the highlights that we've seen from him out of Bellevue and Nebraska – He has not been attached to the line of scrimmage. He's been coming out of the slot, but he's still been extremely effective whether it's been in pass catching or it's been in run blocking. So I I think there's a lot of utility there for Michael Riley Ducker. But when I see a guy that's six foot six, 235 pounds, I see a little bit more of a slot guy maybe than an attached tight end to, to the offensive line. Honestly, and we talked about this on yesterday's show, I'm really surprised that Auburn was was able to steal this guy from some of the other Big Ten schools that he was looking at, specifically in Iowa, who we've said over and over is is prestigious in, in, in when it comes to cranking out NFL-caliber tight ends. I mean, they are just exceptional in the way that they recruit those guys and the way that they put those guys in the league. But you also think about teams like Penn State with Mike Gusecki and just the Big Ten in general. I mean, they love to use the tight end a lot in all of their different schemes. You look at a team like Illinois obviously uh, also going after Brett Bielamel has a track record of that he He, even talked about that when they were interviewing him exactly I'm surprised that Auburn was able to steal this guy away from them and I think again it's a testament to this coaching staff's potential to recruit some of the big guys outside of the region that Auburn is in I think it's incredibly promising moving forward for some of the other guys that Auburn could potentially get down the road I'm just excited I think that this guy is going to be a weapon in this offense come two or three seasons from now It's going to be a lot of fun to be able to use him. The other commitment took place this morning, or at least that's what I I woke up to. I saw Caleb Wooden committed to Auburn, and this is obviously the brother of Colby Wooden, who currently plays at Auburn. This is a safety out of Georgia. What do you see from this commitment? I'm going to be honest with you, Noah. I wasn't incredibly excited about Wooden compared to some of the other guys that Auburn has gotten over the past couple of days. You look at his rankings on rivals. He's the 75th best player in the state of Georgia, 45th best at his position. He's a three-star, 6'1", 180 pounds. I I honestly, I don't see this guy as anything more than, than a depth piece because here's the way that I perceive Auburn recruiting. And I know that it was starting to trend downwards towards the end of Malzahn's career. I still perceive Auburn as a top 15, top 10 school in terms of recruiting. So if they're going to be out there getting guys to play safety, linebacker, anywhere on this team, I would expect them to go out and get some more high-profile guys that they would actually want to start. So whenever I say I think this guy is a depth piece, I genuinely think Auburn in the next year or so will be able to get a guy on the recruiting trail that will play more. And I'm not saying play better, just will – out of the gates have more opportunity to get on the field is what I'm saying but it, it, I'm still I'm still very very happy to have him the fact that Auburn's actually uh, getting some of these guys to sign is is, is very very exciting 24-7 sports he's the number 57 safety in the country number 84 player in the state of Georgia a three-star once again Caleb Wooden you look at his offer sheet 
Auburn's the most prestigious program on that list. Mm-hmm. You've got Auburn, Appalachian State, Duke, Georgia Southern, Georgia Tech, Louisville, USF, and West Virginia. Any recruit that Auburn's going to get, 100%, give him his shot. Definitely wait and see how the guy develops and whatnot. So I understand what you're saying about his recruiting rankings and whatnot. I'm curious if this coaching staff is ahead of the curve with Caleb Wooden versus other schools like do we see him climb up recruiting rankings during his final season in Lawrenceville Georgia do we see other teams offer him along the way that'll be something to follow or is Auburn the most prestigious school still on his offer sheet I think that will tell us a little bit because what does this coaching staff see versus other teams and whatnot and how that they develop players not saying that the kid's not going to pan out not saying that he's not going to be good it's just you look at the recruiting rankings, you look at the offer sheet. I want to follow this guy's recruitment and see how he increases over time. Yeah, I agree with you. I think there are definitely if he if he improves in his senior year of high school, I think he is going to be able to show some guys that across the country so show some schools that he is more than just a three star prospect, eighty fourth best uh, in his state. I think he will be able to move up a little bit, but I, I'm right there with you. I'm interested to see who does come after this guy. I'm not saying that Auburn jumped the gun on him, but to have his brother play at Auburn and to ha- look at the rest of the guys that were that were already recruiting him, I feel like Auburn could have held off maybe just a little bit longer. That being said, I don't mind them picking up this guy, but at the same time, like honestly, well, safety's not a position of concern for me either, yeah. though, because you look at Amari Harvey; he's a freshman. Ladarius Tennyson's a sophomore. By Darius Knighton, of course, only has one year left, but you also get Donovan Kaufman in, Mm -hmm. who's got four years left. So you've at least got three safeties right there that are bona fide starters in the SEC that only have to fill two starting positions, right? So you even have a little bit of depth already. So, And you saying that this is a depth get, I I, I don't even know if you, based off of the way that the roster looks right now, I, I don't even think that you're looking to maybe get a starting safety out of this recruiting class. Maybe I'm wrong, but... When you've got Amari Harvey coming in out of the last one, you still have Ladarius Tennyson as a sophomore, and it kind of feels like Donovan Kaufman is a true freshman as well. He got to play some last year, but only in two games. It kind of feels like he's a part of this 2021 recruiting class that featured Amari Harvey. So you've got a lot of youth there, and your starters are going to be coming from that group. That's what I was trying to say delicately, is I'm not necessarily saying Auburn doesn't need this guy. Of course, it's nice to have depth on your roster, but at the same time, either they could have been content with the guys that they have and been content with the guys that are coming in, because they're going to have depth at that safety position for the next two or three seasons. Like They are good there. I just question how much playing time could this kid get even heading into his junior season, senior season, because Auburn already has that position locked up, and like I was about to say, is Auburn could potentially get another guy on the recruiting trail that is more prestigious than him, and we'll see more playing time immediately. Let's fast forward here to Demetrius Robertson, last year of collegiate eligibility, wide receiver from the Georgia Bulldogs, from the Cal Golden Bears. Now he's an Auburn Tiger. Does this move the needle for you? in Auburn's receiver room does this change your view of Auburn's receivers it does but only in in, in a very specific way again like you mentioned played at Cal's freshman season earned All-America honors I'm really excited to have this guy on roster but outside of his freshman season he doesn't have a lot on paper that wows you 
Uh, I understand that he was de- obviously battling some injuries uh, during his time after he left Cal at Georgia. Even at Cal, he was he was dealing with injuries. So he's he's kind of been kind of been uh, fighting the injury bug throughout his career. But you look at him on paper, and he wasn't doing a whole lot. Uh, 767 yards, 15.3 yards per catch, and seven touchdowns during that freshman All-American season at Cal. And then his best season at Georgia was in 2019, 30 receptions, 333 yards, and three touchdowns. And then in 2018, the year before that, all they did was was use him to run the ball. And I would assume it was jet sweeps because his, his runs were – he didn't have a lot of them, and they were going for really long touchdowns. Um, so I, I, Georgia, I don't know if they either utilized him properly or – or were able to utilize him enough because of his injury, but I'm happy to have him on roster for one reason, and it's experience. I'm not looking to add this guy as a starter. If he is a starter, I'm okay with that. I'm excited about that. I think he's a starter. I think out the gates, he's the best receiver at Albert's receiver room, right out the gates. Yeah, former former five-star prospect, literally the best receiver in the country in 2016, but he brings something that this the rest of this receiver room doesn't necessarily have, which is experience. I mean, this guy's literally been in the game for almost six seasons now and while on paper statistically he may not be the most impressive former five-star former number one overall player he's still got that experience at two power five programs one of them being in, in solid in Georgia so he's he's good to have on roster I mean like why wouldn't you have want to have the guy I'm excited to have him if he can work his way into a starting role which I would assume he would if he didn't I'd be shocked but if he does, I think he will be able to lead this the receiver room. I don't know if it's going to be statistically, but leadership-wise, confidence-wise, ability-wise, I think he's going to stand out. Some things that I like about Demetrius Robertson. Doesn't really drop the football a whole lot. I'm looking at some of his season grades, according to Pro Football Focus, which this is just by-the-book numbers here fact. I know some people have an issue with how PFF grades people, but this is did he drop a pass or not. And across his five seasons in college football, he has only dropped the ball nine times. He's got a pretty good drop percentage. Honestly, that's one of his better grades on here on his PFF profile sheet. And I'll say this, his two seasons where he actually was able to finish the year and was actually able to get onto the field, he was productive. It was his freshman year at Cal. And then, as you already pointed out, the one year that he was able to do that at Georgia was 2019. And at Cal, it was enough to get him All-American honors, seven touchdowns, 767 yards, 50 receptions. In 2019 at Georgia, 30 catches for 333 yards and three touchdowns. You have to remember the receiving room elevated at Georgia. It, 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 It was much more competitive than his time when he was at Cal like when he stepped on as as the number one wide receiver in the country when he went to Cal he was already the best receiver in Cal's receiver room at Georgia that was not necessarily the case switching over to the SEC and also a higher quality of defensive backs but not to mention he had two seasons before that point where he had hardly played he only got 17 targets in 2017 at Cal and then in 2018 at Georgia he only got three targets right so that would explain a little bit for me how he was lower on the depth chart in 2019 at Georgia. But one thing's for sure, when I look at this guy's two seasons where he was actually able to get on the field, which I think he'll be able to get on the field at Auburn, he was productive. Right. And that is something that Auburn does not have right now in their receiver room is production. I think right out the gates already, because of experience and prior production when he's been healthy, 
this guy's already the best receiver in the receiver room, and especially what we saw during the spring. Some people may question this guy and be like, well, why wasn't he able to have a lot of time at Georgia? You know, Why wasn't he able to play at an SEC school? Was he even going to be good for Auburn? And I would say a couple things. Number one, injuries, obviously. And number two, something that you and I were talking about about a month ago whenever we were talking about Auburn's offense and the issues with it, recruiting receivers has not been an issue. I believe they were tied for second in the SEC in terms of like star prospects. They were literally the only team they were behind was Georgia. Georgia. They were tied with Alabama. Auburn goes out there and get and gets theirs. It's the only team in front of them is Georgia. So to have one of their receivers come to come to Auburn, uh, who has ba- been battling injuries, if he can stay healthy for an entire season, again, he was he was not just a former five star best player w- receiver in the country for nothing. I am more than excited to have this guy on roster. I'm interested to see where he fits in on Auburn's roster in terms of what spot in the receiver room he plays because at Cal. He was split out wide 90% of the time or more. He was split out as an X or a Z receiver at Cal. At Georgia, 90% of the time, he played in the slot. And that's looking at his two healthy seasons, the two years where he saw the most playing time. Still, really, most of the time he was playing in the slot. Last year at Georgia, limited playing time once again. He spent 62% of the time in the slot, 38% of the time at split out wide whether it was the x or the z i'm curious to see which of these three receivers job he makes a lot tougher for them to win the starting spot is it Xavier capers is it elijah canyon or is it kobe hudson I, I don't know which of those three receivers it is because right now the way that i look at albert's receiver room i think canyon's playing the x so he's split yeah. out wide on one side kobe hudson will be playing the z so he'll be on the other side and then out of the slot it'll be capers or or Malcolm Johnson Jr., Javarius Johnson, that that will kind of switch around. And I think Capers as well can also play the X because he's got blow the top off of the defense type of speed. But from what we saw during A-Day, I think that's kind of how the, the wide receiver room looks right now. And it's hard for me to gauge which receiver he is going to displace in terms of playing time. Right. I was just looking, I was looking as you were listing off names there, looking at who he could potentially like I don't necessarily think beat out, but definitely give them a run for their money. And he- that's not to say, real quick, I want to I want to make sure I'm in this, and then and then I want you to go forward. That's not to say that I don't think he will displace one of these guys. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out which one which, it is. Right, because like you said, you believe this guy at some point will be a starter in the season. I think he can season. start day one. I think he's the best receiver in the receiver room right now. He is the most polished receiver right now at Auburn. And I'm right there with you because again, we almost know little to nothing about Auburn's receiving room. So it's really and if hard you watched to- them during the spring, they're not polished yeah it's like there's there's there wasn't one guy in particular that like really stood out obviously canyon taught that caught that touchdown pass but like that's at the same time it's like we couldn't right now we can't really gauge where robertson is at compared to one of these other guys on roster that he could potentially overtake i'm i'm with you it's like it'll be interesting to see what happens in fall camp especially considering those pass snap percentages of where he lined up there's a lot of utility there. I think that's the positive you take away. You don't know if he's a slot receiver or if he's split out wide in Auburn's offense. And Maybe they just thing. rotate him around. Maybe it's 50-50. It doesn't have to be one or the other. I think there's a lot of utility there right. to get him on the field. I think he could play pretty much anywhere. I think that's a really good thing because you look at the way Auburn's schedule lines up. If you're coming into that Penn State game and you've got some type of secret weapon you feel like in the receiver room, if it's Robertson, you can hold him back and you can let him shine in that Penn State game because Penn State's not going to know how to scout this guy. They're not going to know where he's going to line up. They're not going to know what he's going to do. Obviously, he's been in the game for six years, but they're not going to know how Auburn wants to use him. 
So I think it's definitely a good thing uh, that Auburn sorts some stuff out during fall camp. And I'll say this. I feel like this receiver room has a little bit of depth. They just don't have experience or production. And Robertson brings both of those things. He's got some yards after catch. He's got some yak, too. There's maybe a little bit of shiftiness here. Back in 2019 at Georgia, he had 137 yards after catch, which averaged out to be about 4.6 yards after a reception, per reception, essentially. I like that. There's some yak there. And at Cal, it was six yards. He was averaging six yards after a catch. That's solid. Yeah, and uh, Cornelius Williams, Auburn's receivers coach, tweeted out and said, hashtag speed kills. I don't know if they're necessarily going to use that guy in some type of speed role, but he's not. I don't think he's necessarily an incredibly physical receiver. He's only six feet tall, 190 pounds. But, but with that being said, that frame isn't getting pushed around either. No, that's not, not Anthony Schwartz. or that. That's not even Devontae Smith. Devontae, right. He's got 20 pounds on Devontae Smith. So he's more of a wild card to me in terms of you look at his snap count, you look at how Auburn could potentially use him to, to kind of take over one of these guys spots that Auburn already has on roster it's going to be interesting to see where he lines up and how he plays let's take a quick break here when we come back Auburn is getting more respect in the basketball world at least from Andy Katz that is compared to Alabama in his latest power 36 we'll talk about that when we come back Back on the line, Lance Dahl, Noah Gardner, Dylan behind the controls, hanging out here with you today on this beautiful Thursday afternoon. If you've listened to this show at all, you know that I hype up this Auburn basketball program. I have been so high on this team. Christian Clemente has come in on Fridays, and he has hyped me up. He has juiced me up this offseason. And finally, Auburn is getting some respect from some big names, one of them being Andy Katz. He put out his Power 36. I don't know if it was earlier today or if it was last night, but it was ranking some 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 college basketball teams after the NBA draft deadline, and he has Auburn finally in the top 25, sitting at that number 25 spot. And Noah, who I'm, left the top 25 though to, to finally put Auburn there? Because nothing's changed for exactly Auburn other than losing say. Desi Sills. So. That's what I was going to say. Is what happened in the top 25 ahead of them in order for Auburn to finally creep in at number 25 for Cats? It's like let's let's take a look at number 24 is Michigan State. And the only thing that Kat says about Michigan State is the Spartans will be quicker, smaller, and hungrier than last season. I don't know if that warrants you being above an Auburn squad that will win the national title. Motivation, <laughs> man. It's how Ray defeated Emperor Palpatine in the last Star Wars movie. Let's see. We got Florida State, Indiana, Syracuse, Wichita State, Arkansas. They've got Memphis at 17. And I do want to point out that Auburn did win the Jalen Green Bowl last season in Atlanta. So I don't see the Memphis uh, Memphis uh, Tigers being better than the Auburn Tigers this season. But something else interesting to note, Alabama coming in at number 33 in Andy Katz Power 36. And I thought this was a little interesting, and you and I were talking about it off-air earlier this morning. It's like, well, what has Alabama lost in order to get this ranking from Katz? Because Sports Illustrated had them at number one in the preseason poll. Shackleford was that important? Primo's not coming back, and Shackleford's gone. Well, Shackleford's their leading scorer, and now when you look at Alabama, they've lost four of their top five scores from last year's SEC championship team. I think they've lost... If they haven't lost all of their starters, they've lost just about all of their starters. Right. I mean, Alabama lost the core of their team from last year. The only guy coming back that was really a – I think the only guy coming back that was a double-digit scorer is Javon Quinterly. Of course, you've got a nice influx of talent coming in through the transfer portal and then also from that 
nice shiny recruiting class that features J.D. Davison and whatnot, but still, they lost a lot, and we saw what losing a lot did to Auburn, even with a nice recruiting class coming in that featured Sharif Cooper and J.T. Thor. Auburn had a top 10 recruiting class, top 15 recruiting class last year, and you still saw what happened. They had a losing record, so 33 may be a little bit too low for me when I evaluate Alabama right now, and I actually was talking to some folks about Alabama basketball yesterday. I still think Alabama's a top five team in the SEC. Maybe that just have too much respect for, for Nate Oates this early on. Maybe I have too much respect for the talent that they're coming that that's coming in. Maybe it's maybe they are too young to do that. But I have a hard time believing with the talent that they've got that they'll fall out of the top five of the SEC. But that very well could be thirty third in the country right. when you're looking at it. So maybe that is a good evaluation of it in the national scope of college basketball. But yeah. they lost a lot. And Shackelford's news of him entering the transfer portal after taking his name out of the NBA draft, that's not a that's not a good thing for Alabama because right. he was the leading scorer last year. Yeah, if you thought the SEC last season was a bloodbath, you are going to love this season. But looking over at what Alabama lost, primo stay in the draft. Obviously Shackleford transferred. Rojas tore his ACL. He may or may not be ready for the for the start of the season. He won't be ready for the start of the season. I think what they're looking at start of SEC play or a couple of games into it. And uh, Alabama's obviously retooling. But my question for Katz is, does he not think that Namari Burnett and Noah Gurley are going to play well enough in order to kind of get Alabama within? Like, I'm not saying, like, bump them in the top 15. I'm just saying I think 33 is just a little too low. So let me put this in perspective for you real quick. Noah Gurley out of Furman, one of the best players in that conference. They, they still play in the SOCON, right? Or have they moved? Furman's still in the SoCon, or have they moved over? I believe they're in the SoCon. I can look. Regardless, Furman was still one of the better teams in a mid-major to small conference in college basketball. And sure, an effective power forward, and he did it against SEC teams. We've seen him be effective against Auburn. We saw him be effective against Alabama. Furman has played a couple of those teams up to this point. But I still question how will, will he still, on average, in SEC play, meet that level of play that he had at Furman how much does his averages drop from playing in the SEC right. and now with a front court that is looking a little skimpier than what it looked like going into last season now that you lose players like Herb Jones right is this guy ready for this stage and we've seen some mid-major guys transfer to Auburn and mm-hmm. they have performed a little bit lower than the caliber that they were while they were playing at the mid-major level. doesn't mean they weren't good players, but I just don't think he's still going to match that level. And then Damari Burnett only averaged like three points a game last year. Right, right. So there's a lot of potential there, but there's still room for those guys to develop and improve in terms of the scope of the SEC. But let's take a quick break here. When we come back, we take a look at over and under totals in college football. Stay tuned. Stay on the line. More of the show when we come back. You're on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Dawn, ESPN 106.7 and Fox Sports Central Alabama. Halfway through hour number one, 2.33 p.m. on your Thursday afternoon. Number to call, 334-321-1390. Phone lines are open. Once again, 334-321-1390. We're taking your calls text line if you want to text into the show 334-564-1840 find us on twitter 
at Point Gardner at Dawg Pound up to this point. We've talked a bit about Auburn football recruiting and the success that they've had in the last 24 hours, really, this past week. We also talked about some of the respect that Auburn started to get on uh, in the basketball community. Of course, John Rothstein's had that respect. Andy Katz now giving a little bit of respect to the Tigers, even more so than respect given to Alabama at this point so yeah I can't believe you could only put the future SEC champions at number 25 I mean that is so disrespectful (laughs) man come on now now we are going to our weekly Thursday segment playing the lines and looking at spreads lines over-unders whatever it may be and today we're taking a look at college football 2021 over-under win totals and I've got a list of 10 teams. This is going to take us a couple of segments, and we'll split it up between this hour and the next. So we'll see how many we can get through right here. But let's start it off with the defending national champions, the Alabama Crimson Tide. And these are all, according to Bovada, 11.5 over under Alabama regular season, by the way. This does not include the postseason. Regular season win total, 11.5 Alabama. So you're predicting undefeated or or not who do they, yeah and the question would be who do they lose to on this schedule mm, there there are not a lot of legitimate options whenever you look <laughs> at their schedule whenever I, it, I know that sounds bad but like Miami on the road at A&M who just lost their quarterback at Florida and at Auburn it's like dude wouldn't they be favored in all of those games oh like, they'll be favored on every single game on their schedule yeah so you don't have to ask that question I I will t- it's not it's not necessarily taking it, yeah it is t- I I'll take the over on it I'll say that they go undefeated guess what what taking the under you're taking the under taking the under follow me here and for the record I probably feel a little bit more comfortable saying this team's going to go 12 and 0 but if this was a bet mm-hmm. I'm taking the under because a just just look at this from from a payout standpoint like it's a whole lot safer a bet to say that they're going to go undefeated right right and so I'm not going to get very much out of it Mm -hmm. to say that they're going to go undefeated so if I was actually going to to wander into this territory and if I was actually going to bet which I'm not a betting man but if I was actually going to wander into this territory here I would not bet on this but if I was actually going to then I would say the under because there's a little bit more of a reward here and now let me bring you to point b of why this could be a year where things kind of get a little tricky for Alabama I'll say this, say what you want, but Auburn is 6-4 and four against Alabama at home since 2000, including, back to, including back-to-back wins at Jordan-Hare Stadium in the last two meetings. Picking an Alabama over-under win total in a season where they have to go to Auburn is a very dangerous game that I would like to stay away from. Now, for the sake of this exercise in this segment, I cannot, and I have to choose, and so I decided to go with the under here because also looking at Another statistic, and I was looking at uh, since 2004, how many years removed is it uh, between Auburn going to SEC championship games? Right. I was looking at how many years removed are they from each SEC championship appearance that they have since 2004. And currently right now, Auburn is in that range of seasons since their last SEC championship appearance that they would have the roster makeup to mess some things up in the league and, and, and to do that. Because on average... Auburn is 4.3 seasons removed from its last SEC title appearance before they make another one. Right. Guess how many years ago it was since Auburn made an SEC championship? How many? This would be the fourth year. And so Auburn's very much so. There, there's a bit of a cycle. Like I said, since 2004, and really modern times there, since 2004, there is a cycle. It's, it's on average, every four years, Auburn goes to an SEC championship game. Right. Right. 
especially since Chiswick came around. And so you're looking at that point, and it's like, and you look at Auburn's roster right now, and I've talked about the experience. They've got the experience on the offensive line. They've got experience at quarterback. They've got experience at running back. They've got experience all across the defense. The one thing that you're not certain about in terms of experience is at receiver, and that just changed a bit with Demetrius Robertson coming in. I think that there is sneaky talent here and enough experience for Auburn to really surprise some people this year. And I've said that a lot. I've said the base for Auburn this year, for me, is 8-4. and four. I really think Auburn's sitting more about 9-3, and 10-2, and two, but they will at least go 8-4. and four. Now, with that being said, I did say earlier, I, I, I do think that Alabama will more than likely, they're, they're either going 11-1 and one or 12-0. But if I was put into a situation where I had to bet this, I, I'd go under based off of the parameters I've just talked about. Average years removed from SEC titles, Auburn's very much so in that range. You also talk about their home record against Alabama. These are the types of years where things get weird, and I have this weird feeling. So I, I would I, I would go under. All right, boys, let's blow this one out of proportion. Noah literally just said he thinks Auburn's <laughs> going to beat Alabama this season. Let's write it down. Let's, I didn't say that. He didn't say it, but let's blow it out of proportion because proportion it's fun. I can there there is a there is a world if where if I'm betting I can see that happening and I see it, it would be reasonable to bet that way. Oh, I'm avoiding this like the plague. There's no way if I see Alabama's got to yeah. go to Auburn and I'm thinking over under win total. No way. I'm not p- placing money on that. No way. Nope. I will just see what happens. I will guess in my mind. There's and been I will enough see what chaos happens. in the last decade between Auburn and Alabama for one to uh, if you're just not paying attention if you think that's safe. Right. You're just not paying attention. Yeah. Next one is Auburn here. The over-under, according to Bavada, seven games. <laughs> this uh, was easy. I said over. Didn't even have to think about it. <laughs> said over. Once again, I said at least eight wins for Auburn just a moment ago. Just revisit everything I just said about Alabama and all of the reasons why I think this Auburn team is sneaky talented enough to surprise people this year. I think they win at least eight games. Honestly, I'm sitting more at nine. I, I'd still take the over if they said if they said it at eight. I'd still take the over. In a year where the SEC West has has – inexperience at the quarterback position I've gone on this show and I've said on air that I think it is more likely that Auburn would make the SEC championship than to not make a bowl game I would take the over in this situation I'm not saying either of those things are going to happen but I think Auburn does win eight or nine games I think it may be more likely that Auburn goes to an SEC championship than they only win six games and that's kind of the bet that it's asking you to make a little bit right there not not saying are they more likely to go to an SEC championship or not? But I think it's much more likely that Auburn has a, a a surprising season than they have a surprisingly bad season. But moving along, Gus Malzahn, UCF over under nine and a half. Mm, I got to look at their schedule. I got to look at their schedule first. My gut says over, but at the same time, they play in a conference with Cincinnati. While you're looking up their schedule, I'll break it down for you here real quick. Here it is, yep. I went over because I had to locate, all right, what games are 50-50 for UCF on this schedule? And I narrowed it down to four games, Boise State, Louisville, Cincinnati, and Memphis. Mm-hmm. Can UCF go 2-2 two and two against those four teams without losing games that they shouldn't? Makes me really uncomfortable, really uncomfortable picking the over here because typically – Gus Malzahn beat the teams that he should until last season at Auburn. Typically, Auburn was going to beat the teams that they should. They just weren't overly competitive against the best teams in the SEC, mm-hmm. i.e. LSU, Alabama, Georgia, and that's ultimately his downfall and why Auburn was 8-5 and five every year. But and, and I think because of his experience in the SEC, I'm expecting this to be like switching from playing a video game on hard to switching to play a video game on easy. You're going from all Madden to rookie. Right. This is, this is a much easier... 
schedule than Gus Malzahn has been accustomed to since he was at Arkansas State in 2012 when he went like 9-3 and or whatever. I feel pretty comfortable in saying that they will win at least nine games. It's getting to 10 here where I'm like, oh man, this is hard. Because I, I, I do think that they go at least, that they, they win eight games easy. And then it, you look at these four games here that are 50-50 between Boise State, Louisville, Cincinnati, and Memphis, and you have to go two and two. If I had to pick wins there, I think they split between Boise State and Louisville, and I think they split between Cincinnati and Memphis, and they get there. So I went 10-2, and two, and that's that's what UCF will do this year. You said the line's nine and a half, not nine. nine. And a half. Yeah, so you got to pick 10 or or nine here here's my thing and I know this might sound crazy if there are any Boise State fans out there I'm sorry I know that apparently there are now that Brian Harson is here uh, at Auburn but I don't think that Boise State's game Boise State game is going to be very competitive I think UCF's going to win that game really yeah I think Gus Malzahn in this offense at home I think they'll be able to take that game I mean I think they win I don't know if I'd go as far as to say that it won't be very competitive I think when Boise it, State probably has a more complete roster than UCF UCF's defense scary bad but the high-end talent at UCF is probably better than the high-end talent at Boise State because you look at Dylan Gabriel, he's one of the best quarterbacks in the country, at least from a statistical standpoint. So I, I, I'm, when, whenever I say not necessarily competitive, I'm saying like a 14-17 to 17 point win. Okay. I think, I think that they, they win handily. You look at Boise State's defense, they gave up 27.1 points per game last season. UCF gave up 33.2 I would say that the Mount- better than LSU. Yeah, hey, look at there. Um, I would say that at home, regardless of how bad UCF's defense may potentially be this season, I think UCF and this and their their atmosphere. I think Big Game Boomer on Twitter actually graded the UCF student section as like a tier, like tier one, like some it's of the hype. one of the best in college football. The Bounce House is fun. They're one of the largest schools in the entire country, so I, that would not shock me whatsoever. But you know what will sho- be shocking is this Boise State team walking into that atmosphere week one. I think it's going to be. I think it's going to be a little scary. Something else to note here: last week we did playing the lines, and we were looking at week one college football spreads and I think it was three and a half to UCF over Boise State right now according to like bet online AG or whatever Cole Kubelik put those out on his Twitter account I took UCF to win that and I do think UCF beats Boise which game do you think is more difficult to win Boise or Louisville I think I think Louisville on the road simply because of the talent that you're dealing with it's still a power five school and I still have trust in Scott Satterfield Louisville's head coach um, I think that's. I think it's a little bit tougher because again, I I also factor in atmosphere. I think that's going to be really. I think Louisville fans are going to show up for that UCF game. I think UCF fans are going to show up for this Boise State game. It's kind of weird that the the triangle of Auburn connections that that we have between UCF, Boise State, and Auburn now. It's really really weird, but uh, I I think that Louisville game is just a, a tad tougher, even though Boise State is still a formidable opponent. What are the odds that UCF is 5-0 and and Cincinnati's undefeated as well and we get like a top 15, top 12 matchup going into October 16th when UCF goes to Cincinnati? Well, Cincinnati has a couple of really tough games. They play Notre Dame early on. They play Indiana and Notre Dame on the road in back-to-back games before 
Uh, they take on UCF. They also get Temple at home, and, and Temple in the past has, has been known to upset some teams that they shouldn't beat, so I think that's definitely a game at home to watch out for. So there's two really tough games, and then a potential trap game in between looking ahead to UCF if Cincinnati has somehow survived and, and is undefeated up until that point. So what would you say, which is more likely? I was just saying, how likely is it that, that these two teams are undefeated and you get like a top 15, top 12 matchup in October? I'll say Cincinnati has one loss and UCF is undefeated. And we, yeah, I think it's likely. I think it's likely we see like a top 15 matchup that'll be sitting on ESPN too. I think you could, I, I have a weird feeling that Cincinnati is going to be undefeated at that point too. A lot of experience, a lot of players coming back for Cincinnati as well. Like the, the core of that team last year that really pushed Georgia. Mm-hmm. I'm not high up on Notre Dame. I wonder what Indiana's encore is going to be like this year. And UCF, I, I feel like, is a better football team than Boise and Louisville at this point. I think that the high end, once again, you talk about the high end explosive offense at UCF, I think could be enough to steal both of those wins over Boise State and Louisville, or really just steal the win over, over Louisville because UCF favored against Boise right now. But that, that, that's going to be a fun storyline to watch is UCF and Cincinnati running parallel with each other because it could be a real collision course come October when those two teams play and you could be looking at a you could be looking at a I don't even know is that like a Thursday night no that's a Saturday that would have been a hype Thursday night matchup man that would be one where I'd be hanging out downtown Auburn and like Mellow Mushroom or something watching that game it'd be hype I'm glad it's not on a Friday night I know the American plays sometimes on a Friday night I'm glad it's not because obviously you and I have high school football responsibilities and I would really like to watch that ball game Let's do one more here. Texas over under is eight. Eight. Again. I didn't have to think about this one. I said over. You said over. Okay. I said over. I think they go 3-0 and in non-conference play, beating Arkansas, Rice, and Louisiana Lafayette. I don't see this team going 4-5 and in conference play. There, there are not I, – I, I don't think that there's more than I – don't, I, don't, I don't think there's anybody really more talented than mm. Texas other than Oklahoma and Iowa State. And when you look at recruiting rankings – Texas should be more talented than Iowa State, but due to player development and roster construction, the fact that this Iowa State team is one of the most experienced teams in the country, I think you could make the argument that Iowa State is more talented than Texas. But I pointed this out a lot. Three, four years ago, Texas Tech had back-to-back top three recruiting classes. They're all like juniors and seniors now. This Texas team has talent. And now Steve Sarkeesian just has to direct it in the right way and not lose two subpar teams and the Big right. 12, like Texas, loses to every year. And I, I don't think that happens this year. I, I think they win nine easy. Here's what scares me. All right, let's go through the schedule really, really quickly. I agree with you. I think they start 3-0 and uh, non-conference play, 4-0 and after the win against Texas Tech. They lost to TCU at home last season with a starting quarterback in Sam Ellinger. I, I would not pencil that game as a win or a loss, but I think that is a 50-50 matchup, and it's something interesting to look at. Oklahoma, obviously, is a 50-50 game. Oklahoma State's going to be competitive. You'll win at Baylor I feel like Iowa State is is a 50-50 matchup Kansas should be a win West Virginia should be a win and then Kansas State so let's count that up one two three four five six seven eight like wins that you're confident confident in so the question is whether or not they do win one of those extra games and if not do they slip up in a game that they shouldn't as well I think Based on what else this Texas team has, and you talked about the recruiting and Steve Sarkeesian going to be coming in and, and continuing their their how electrifying they are on offense, continuing that, I would say over. I think it's more likely that their offense is is still playing really really well, and they've got a lot of talent on roster. They should they should win nine games. They so. were not bad last year. 
They averaged 42.7 points per game and only gave up 28 and a half. That's better than a lot of SEC teams last year. Now, granted, they were in the Big 12, but they were not bad. They were not. This could have been a big year for Tom Herman if he could have gotten out of his own way and not have lost to some of those subpar Big 12 teams. And how much of that was Sam Ellinger? Because sometimes Sam Ellinger would just would not show up some nights like for some for some reason he would just have bonehead decisions that would lose texas games against squads like tcu last year where they lose 33 to 31 or or and they even pushed oklahoma last year and only lost by eight and then losing to iowa state they only lost by three this was not a bad texas team last year they lost to good teams by very little margins iowa state and oklahoma were solid last year especially when they played them so I, I, I'm very high up on this Texas team going into this year. I think Sarkeesian's found the right fit to really make something work and, and really elevate his coaching, his coaching presence in college football. Let's take a quick break here. When we come back, we talk about the NBA Finals Game 2 tonight at 8 on ABC. We'll be back in just a moment. You're on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Dawn, ESPN 106.7 in Fox Sports Central Alabama. NBA Finals tonight, 8 p.m. on ABC. Phoenix Suns have that 1-0 series lead over the Milwaukee Bucks. The Bucks, five-point dogs tonight. Continuing on that theme that we had in our last segment, playing the lines. Lance, where do you stand on going into tonight's matchup game two? There was only one thing that I wrote down in my notes for this segment. Do you actually believe it, though? I, I'm buying into the hype. Suns in four. Let's get it. I think Phoenix wins. Period. I think they win two. Their last two series, they've gotten out to 2-0 leads. Hasn't been a problem. The only series that they didn't get out to a 2-0 lead was the first round series against LeBron. LeBron's not going to go down easy, right? And of course, the Suns did end up putting them away. But And I'm glad that the Suns put them away because it allowed for the, the ability to have parity. Parity, you're right. In an interesting NBA Finals. This is interesting. Suns, Bucks. Now, if it turns into a sweep, I'll be upset because the one year that we all ask for parity is the year where we get a sweep in the finals. Uh, yeah, I guess that's that's true. bad for the program, Lance. I just like at the same time, I'm I'm really excited with what the Suns are doing right now, and it's more fun to think in my mind that they are going to sweep than expecting them to lose a game because if they do sweep, I'm going to be even more excited. It's like com- the complete opposite as to how I view myself as an Auburn fan. It's like I'd much rather think that we're going to do worse than we are so that I'm excited. But the Suns, I have like not a whole lot of emotional attachment to, so I can say that they're going to go all the way and sweep and, and not feel too bad when they don't big question here is how healthy is Giannis Antetokounmpo still look pretty good in game one compared to what we thought he probably would be at as far as how healthy he was because he got raised to questionable from doubtful earlier in that day and then he ends up playing and he puts up what 20 points goes 50 percent from the floor and looked pretty double. good right I'm sure he's progressed a little bit as far as rest but what does that what does his health look like now that he's not resting anymore now that he's back in the fact that he has to play prepare play travels involved and whatnot how does that factor into because it's easy for him to get a nice long rest and to be able to come back and do that but does he have the stamina to continue to do that throughout the rest of the series I think that's an important question to ask and then on top of that does Drew Holiday bounce back right because the the Bucks are not winning if Drew Holiday does not bounce back tonight. Yeah, it's, it's, I'll say this. If you're coming off an injury, 
having one day in between NBA Finals games is not enough time to get rest to heal yourself. So if you're going game, uh, one day of rest, and then another game, you're not going to be able to heal up in that time. We saw that with Jimmy Butler last year. So what is the stamina like for Giannis Antetokounmpo? What is his follow-up performance? That will be something to key in on here because this could be a pivotal game in the series. A 2-0 lead for the Suns very much so puts them in a great position to win the NBA Finals. That's it for hour number one of On the Line. We'll be back with hour number two coming up. Stay tuned. On the line, live on Fox Sports Central Alabama on 98.3 FM in Birmingham and Sylacauga and in Auburn on ESPN 1067 or online on foxsports983.com and ESPNAU.com. You are on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Daw. Join the show by calling in at 334-321-1390 or toll free at 888 888- 382-7502. Hour number two of On the Line. Noah Gardner and Lance Dahl with you on the Thursday edition of the show. One hour left until the drive with Bill Cameron coming up at four, four to six as they do every weekday on ESPN 106.7 and Fox Sports Central Alabama. Follow Fox Sports Central Alabama on Facebook to keep up with the latest going on in sports. On the Line, the drive with Bill Cameron, analysis, news, and more all on Fox Sports Central Alabama on FoxSports983.com and on Facebook. That's FoxSports983.com. Phone lines are open. Number to call, 334-321-1390. Text line, 334-564-1840. If it's easier for you to text us, you don't have time to maybe hop on for a nice phone call, send us a text, 334-564-1840. At Point Gardner, at Dawpound Pound on Twitter. Last week, Jake and I on Friday did what were the three worst things to happen to Auburn football in the last decade. Now it is time for what are the three best things to happen to Auburn football in the last decade. Can you briefly tell me what your three worst were? Ooh. If you recall. I said Auburn not recovering from not having a quarterback in 2015 and 2016. Mm -hmm. I don't want to put everything on Jeremy Johnson and what happened during that time period because I think that's a little harsh but missing on Jeremy Johnson that was that was tough because Auburn never recovered Stidham had one good year but even in four losses that season he wasn't very good in 2017 2018 I don't think he was very good at all mm-hmm. I, I can't say that you're very good if you threw two interceptions to Tennessee defensive linemen sorry I can't do that I could do that and then that's right I could do that too especially if I wanted to avoid a sack and then you get to Bo Nix, which is where we're at right now, and there's still a lot of growing pains there. And I don't think you'd say the quarterback room has really improved since Jared Stidham. I don't know if you'd say the quarterback room's improved. Maybe you'd say it's regressed, probably. I think if you had Jared Stidham with this, with Brian Harson right now, and you had Jared Stidham. Dream. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Dream come true. That would be <laughs> so fun. Stidham would be focused and having fun. That's right. A dark horse for the Heisman under those parameters. Okay, like legitimately though, like if Stidham was coming off his 2017 year and he was heading into another year with Brian Harson, like I would not say dark horse for the Heisman, but I think he'd be pretty darn good. Also said that 2018 when Auburn lost to LSU, that was the beginning of the end for Malzahn. I don't think Auburn ever really recovered from that game. You look at the rest of 2018, not very good. 2019, of course, 
they had the great opening against Oregon, but what other good teams did they really beat that year other than Alabama? I mean, of course, they did beat Alabama. That was a high note. But then the same story continues in 2020. Auburn lose to Auburn lost to mainly all of the teams that were good on their schedule. Mm-hmm. So it, it just seems like they lost a lot of confidence in that 2018 LSU game where they had a lot of confidence going into that season after they beat Washington. Yeah. It felt like they had a lot of confidence at that point. And then they lose to LSU, and what happens? They look bad, almost lose to Southern Miss, and then they lose back-to-back games against unranked Mississippi State and Tennessee, fall off the face of the earth, end up in the Music City Bowl, and then you're, you wasted a senior, the senior year of Jared Stidham that was supposed to be an even better season. You were supposed to be building on what he did in 2017. Yeah. I think that's kind of that, that was one of the worst things to happen to Auburn was LSU putting that football through the uprights and beating Auburn. And I was, I was going to, uh, at that time, I was in New Orleans and I was watching that game and I can't remember where I was watching that, but it, it was like a, it was like a sports bar in New Orleans and it was, it's owned by like Archie Manning in in right down there by it, it wasn't on bourbon street but it's on one of those streets not far from it you were in lsu territory though. i was it was packed out man all lsu fans there was me my my now wife but girlfriend at the time and then one other auburn dude and the auburn dude was kind of obnoxious actually <laughs> but uh they're, they're the lsu people like just went they were quiet all game long and then that field goal went through and i was like man this is tough mm. had to walk out it's tough luckily i'd already paid the bill by the time that the that the field goal went through but still that was that was an interesting moment to to be in lsu territory during that during that football game so i do not remember remember that game fondly so jeremy johnson 2000 or not jeremy johnson just the not recovering 2018 lsu game what was your third Dabo sweeney's emergence in college football i think is a really negative thing for auburn not just because he could elongate the alabama dynasty if he ends up becoming the alabama football coach but it added more regional pressure from a recruiting standpoint. You think about Justin Ross in the past, Auburn would have just had to compete with Alabama for Justin Ross or Georgia for Justin Ross. Instead, they had to also compete with Georgia and Clemson and Alabama. And guess where he chose to go? He went to Clemson. And then you also look at most recently the the Lawson wide receiver, EJ Lawson or whatever his name is, that's projected as a starter from Central Phoenix City. Where else did he go? He went to Clemson, right? Yep. So you think about it, there's more regional pressure from a recruiting standpoint. Clemson made it a whole lot tougher. It was it was already tough enough that it started with Alabama in the early 2010s dominating the game. And then Georgia got really good. And then Clemson got really good. And Clemson and Georgia really got good at the at the same time. And they're putting a lot of pressure on Auburn from the east. Alabama's putting a lot of pressure on Auburn where they're even at right now in their own backyard in the state of Alabama. And then Florida's gotten really good from the south. And Miami's trying to bring back the U. I mean, there's pressure from Auburn. There's pressure on Auburn in all in all areas, and I don't really care about the Western Front in Mississippi because that's not even where Auburn goes and gets their best recruits. Nothing against Jarquez Hunter, but I mean, think about it. That's not where Auburn goes and gets their best recruits. They recruit yeah. Alabama, Florida, and Georgia, and there's extreme pressure coming from all angles right now. And Dabo Sweeney made it a lot tougher. I think that was one of the worst things to happen to Auburn. People don't make that link, but I, I think it was. I didn't mean to derail. I just thought it, I just wanted to hear what your thoughts were. Those are the 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 Davos Winnie thing, like an external factor, like not within the program. I think that's interesting to think about. One hundred percent. It's it's a negative, especially and, and it confirms what I just said. If he does end up becoming the head coach at Alabama, yeah. I, th- I think easily you can say that's one of the worst things that happened to Auburn in the two thousand tens. Is Davos Winnie's emergence as a top tier head coach yeah. in college football as a, as a legit successor 
to Nick Saban. Well, let's talk about some of the positives because right. I've got some good good stuff to talk about here. What was your what was your number one? Not necessarily best thing, but starting like in this decade, what was what was your first? Since we're going in chronological order, I might need to take the first two here. Let's go in chronological order. Both yep. of us are saying the national championship. Yeah, and technically that kind of squeezes in in the last decade because it was the 2011 BCS national championship. This is an obvious one. Enough said. Auburn's first national championship in over 50 years. Yeah. This was a major moment to help increase Auburn's prestige on the national stage and to say, hey, we're for real. We're for real. We can compete for national championships. We can compete for SEC titles that we can be one of the best. We're not a mediocre middling program. Mm-hmm. It was a major moment from a prestige standpoint that Auburn can do this, right? Not to mention everything else that happened during that year with Cam Newton. He's a major ambassador for the university, not only when he was in college, but also now at the professional level. It's great to have a quarterback that's been in the league for over 10 years. That That is that is a very prestigious moment for Auburn that you are still able to reap the benefits of, I think, to a degree at this point. Yeah. We're a little bit removed from it, and I think we're beginning to see the benefits of it dwindle. But for half a decade to, to seven, eight years, Auburn really, I think, benefited from that national championship even more so than just the 2011 season yeah I agree with you it's like first national championship since 1957 come on like that's exciting it It has to be on your it has to be on your list unless you're Alabama of course it might might be third or fourth but yeah I mean of course they win national championships why you gotta say it like that I'm sorry I'm sorry man. (laughs) we're talking about positive things for Auburn positive things okay what's your number two my number two, and I know you've got something for the 2013 season, so I'm going to let you go more in depth, but I said the 2013 season as a whole is an obvious choice because it resuscitated Auburn's program. I think Spectre may have texted us earlier last week saying that Auburn's program would have fallen off the face of the earth had it not been for Nick Marshall. Am I right in saying that? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was Spectre, right? I think so. So Spectre texted us last week and said that, and I was like, wow, that's something that I never really considered because Auburn might have bounced back and got to a bowl game that year with Gus Malzahn, but without some of the things that happened in that 2013 season to resuscitate the Auburn program, put them back in the national limelight, I think it told folks from a recruiting standpoint, and it told people around college football, especially recruits around college football, that, hey, everything's okay at Auburn. It, it erased people's minds of 3-9. and nine. Mm-hmm. I, I think it erased that perception completely. It, 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 it things could have really gotten bad but it erased it erased that that prior year I've I've actually got something before 2013 and then I've got an honorable mention that's more recently Auburn tanking at the right time if Gene Chizik did not go three and nine in 2012 would Auburn have hired Malzahn or would they have ridden Chizik out for another three or four years of going eight and five seven and six and maybe hired somebody like Kirby Smart down the road instead of letting him go to Georgia would we have ever seen that 2013 season if uh, if Kirby, or if Gene Chizik went three and nine we wouldn't have we wouldn't have because he still would have been there even if Chizik goes six and six that year I think he might have been in 2012 I think he might have been still at Auburn yeah yep because Malzahn got that type of respect Malzahn goes national championship eight and five six and six in the regular season and that would have been the exact trajectory for Gene Chizik at that time so I agree with that although I think 2012 though because 2013 happened I think hindsight you can make the argument that you're making I was uncomfortable to put that on my list because that was an atrocity to occur in the last decade as well Uh, yeah but I think I think looking back on it now I think you would say that it definitely benefited Auburn because we would have never seen the greatest iron bowl of all time the kick six we would have never seen that if Gene Chizik had 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 not tanked in 2012 
Man, Scott Leffler would have been the OC in 2013. <laughs> uh, a lot of good, oh, a lot man. of good came from that. Can I go ahead and give my number three? Yeah, go for and it. This, this is good. I, I'm, I'm excited to dig in on these statistics. I have a couple of honorable mentions after this, but my number three is the 2013 Auburn versus Texas A&M game. Why did I choose this game? Well, up until this football game, Auburn had not proven itself, specifically on offense. You go back and watch that Washington State game, that opening game to the season, and they had some issues. Nick Marshall did not know how to throw a football. You go to that Mississippi State game, they were still working out the kinks, and it took them about half a season to really get the ball rolling, and there are numbers that reflect that. Let's go over Auburn's touchdown totals against Power 5 opponents before they played Texas A&M in 2013. They had one touchdown against Washington State, they had two against Mississippi State, three against LSU, and three against Ole Miss. But they also had a lot of turnovers. Every single game that they played against a Power 5 school before they played A&M, they had as many turnovers as they did touchdowns, if not more. Against Washington State, they had a turnover. Against Mississippi State, they had three. LSU, they had three. And Ole Miss, they had two turnovers. So that is nine touchdowns to 10 turnovers. And the reason that I say uh, touchdowns against Power 5 schools and not just like collective points is because I don't want to see this Auburn offense that is look, being looked back at as one of the best offenses to ever take the field for, for Auburn. I want to look at what they were doing whenever they were clicking on all cylinders. I don't want to talk about what they're doing whenever their drives fall short and they kick field goals. At that same time, though, look at their points per game total against Power 5 schools. 26.5 points per game. That's not an elite offense. They were not playing well. Then the Texas A&M game happened. You're going into College Station, number seven team in the country. The only loss that they had had that year was like 49-42 to Alabama in just a shootout. They were one of the best teams in the country. They had a Heisman winner on their team, and Auburn goes in, and they take them down. And after that point, everything flipped. I think you could say the second half of the Texas A&M game as well because Auburn was down by multiple scores in that football game. 21 points in the fourth quarter for Auburn. In that A&M game, Auburn had six touchdowns and one turnover. I want to also point out that all of these touchdowns, it does not include special teams touchdowns. This is what the offense did. This is what the offense did. So it does not include the two punt return touchdowns against Tennessee that I'll talk about later, and it does not include the kick six. Let's move on. These are the games that Auburn had after... They played A&M and won. Arkansas, five touchdowns, no turnovers. Tennessee, seven touchdowns, two turnovers. They had nine total in that game if you include the two punt return touchdowns. Georgia, five touchdowns, one turnover. Alabama, four touchdowns, one turnover. Missouri, eight total touchdowns and two turnovers. And then Florida State in the national championship game, four touchdowns, one turnover. That is 41 total touchdowns to six turnovers that's 6.8 touchdowns a game compared to one turnover on average, and that's 43.5 points per game. Compared to what happened before the Texas A&M game, nine touchdowns, 10 turnovers, 26.5 points per game. That Texas A&M game completely flipped the script for Auburn that season. Look at the teams that they were playing, too, as well, before, before they really got into the meat of their schedule. They weren't that good. Washington State, Arkansas State, Mississippi State, LSU, who turned out to not be great that year, Ole Miss, who was ranked at the time, but after they lost that game, they weren't, and Western Carolina. After that game, A&M, Florida Atlantic, who cares? Arkansas, Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, Missouri, and Florida State. And they managed to make such a significant jump in the back half of the season against better defenses and better opponents. That Texas A&M game changed what, ha- what could have been that season. 
course, there were obviously things that happened after that, mainly being the prayer of Jordan Hare and the kick six that also changed the trajectory of that uh, Auburn season. But I would say that Tex- the, the Texas A&M game was one of the m- most pivotal moments in the past decade because if Auburn doesn't figure things out on offense and they lose that game, obviously they're not going to the national title. And obviously they don't have as much momentum heading throughout the rest of the season. My last one, and I loved all that. That was great statistics. I didn't realize that it was that much. I knew Auburn got a lot better, obviously. like they, If you just said A&M was the turning point that year, I'd be like, yeah, of course it was. But I didn't know how much, statistically, I, I didn't know how much that was supported, of course, other than just seeing difference in how they were playing on the field. My last one, my last one of the three best things to happen to Auburn football in the last decade, Tank Bigsby coming to Auburn. And I don't think it's too early to say that because I've compared this guy and I did this. I was doing a podcast at the time last football season. It was a video podcast that can still be seen. You can also still go and find the audio out there. It was called Running the Point. And I broke down Tank Bigsby's numbers through his first three games because at the time it was just through his first three games. You got his coming out party earlier that year against Arkansas. And I compared Tank Bigsby's numbers to other freshman Auburn running backs in that same time period that they had around the same amount of carries, same amount of games. So it was across their first three games and or however many games it took them to get to around the the type of or the volume of touches that Tank Bigsby had gotten up to that point through three football games. So Tank Bigsby last year threw three games to open it up. He had 34 carries for 192 yards, 5.6 yards per carry, 11 receptions for I believe that's yeah, 84 yards. Michael Dyer only had like 212 yards at that point. He had more carries, less yards per carry. So Tate Bigsby had him beat there. Carnell Williams had 153 yards, substantially fewer yards than Tate Bigsby at that point. That was 40 less yards, and he had more carries. He was only averaging like 3.9 yards per carry through his first five games. Carnell's first five games, he just averaged 3.9 yards per carry. Mm. Ontario McCaleb actually was rather impressive in his first two games. He saw a bulk amount of carries. He had 38 for 260 yards and 6.9 yards per carry a couple touchdowns as well but he only finished that season with double that he only finished with 565 yards you look at what tank did last year if he had played in the outback bowl against northwestern last year tank bixby's in a thousand yard rusher in only 10 games Mm -hmm. and you compare tank to all of these running backs who had some of their best statistical seasons as freshmen or, or some of the best seasons as freshmen when you compare to Auburn greats like Ben Tate's also on this list as well some of the best freshman seasons we saw were from Michael Dyer Carnell Williams Ontario McCaleb and Ben Tate Tank Bixby exceeded all of that if Tank Bixby had had the the bowl game also we're, we're, we're taking into account that Tank Bixby wasn't healthy last year for the entire year and that he really didn't start getting used a lot until the Arkansas game which was three games into the season if you take all that into account, like pound for pound, I think he even beats the, the best freshman running back season that we had seen since like Bo Jackson, which was Michael Dyer. I think he even beats Michael Dyer had he, give, had he been given the chance. And so when I look at Tank Bixby, I see best freshman running back at Auburn since at least 2000. Yep. yep. And if Michael Dyer was the best one since Bo Jackson, I think you could say if Tank had been healthy last year, Based off of what we've seen from him from a talent perspective, ability to break tackles, patience, vision, balance, all that. He's got all the tools. The guy can catch the ball in the backfield. This guy really is. He, he by, by the time his career is over, 
at Auburn, we, we will recognize him as, as one of the best running backs of all time to Don Orange Blue. So my two honorable mentions, one of them was on Johnson because I feel like he literally carried us to that SEC championship game. And then after he was injured, we saw what happened to that, to the, to that team. I think he was a really important piece for that team, obviously. Um, and then my second honorable mention was Tank Bigsby because I, I think he is going to finish his career as one of the best running backs to, to play at Auburn. But I don't want to to say that he is the best thing to happen yet or in the past decade in case that doesn't happen. That being said, he's got so much potential, man. He's got so much potential. Hop on the top, hop on that high train. I'm I'm ready. I'm ready. I think that if if once again he has to stay healthy, of course. But hop on that hype train. This guy, if he stays healthy, this is special. I mean, I'm talking. You've said this. I'm talking like he's got the potential in this offense to put up. 1,500-yard rushing seasons. Yep. Got to stay healthy, but that is not out of the realm of possibility. This guy really could be special, especially when I'm comparing him, once again, to what Freshman did as Auburn greats. I mean, I'm talking – these are not these are not lowly names. This is Ben Tate, Carnell Williams, Terry McCaleb was pretty good, Michael Dyer. These guys were studs. Tim Bigsby's right up there with them statistically, and he did it in like half a year's playing time, legit playing time. Because it took him three games to finally for this coaching staff to finally recognize that they should give him the football, and then it, it he got hurt two thirds of the way through the year. Didn't even get to play in the bowl game. I mean, what? How, how many legitimate games would we say Tank Bixby got last year? Five, six. Mm-hmm. It's like, and he put up over eight hundred yards, over six points, like what six point six yards per carry, something like that. Six point three yards per carry. It's insane. There are Auburn running backs that didn't do that when they were seniors. You know, I mean, I mean, this this guy really, really could be. He's got to stay healthy, but I'm on it. I'm on the hype train. It, it left. Choo, choo. Let's take a quick <laughs> break here. When we come back, we take a look at Auburn's recruiting. They had a recent flurry of commitments. Does it change our opinion on the state of Auburn's recruiting class? We'll be back in just a moment. You're on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Dawn, ESPN 106.7 and Fox Sports Central Alabama. Number to call, 334-321-1390. Text line, 334-564-1840. We've been really critical of recruiting on this show. There's no doubt about it. It's probably been every day for the last like four or five days that we've done a show. We've been really critical of recruiting for Auburn. Has these last three recruits, last four recruits that have committed now, because it goes back to the kicker, it goes back to McPherson earlier this week, two days ago or whatever, and then it, then you had three in the last 24 hours really, maybe even less than that. Does this group of four commitments this week, does it, and I'm also including Demetrius Robertson in this group because three of them are a part of this class, so you still just have six players in this 2022 class. So maybe I should exclude Demetrius Robertson for this. So should these three players that have committed to the 2022 class – 24-7 sports has got Auburn up now to 70th nationally, 14th in the SEC still, dead last. Does it change your opinion on our traffic light of recruiting? Are you still a yellow light? So in terms of just the entire landscape and how my, my entire perspective on this thing, I think you have to go back to literally what you just said. 70th nationally, still last in the SEC. I'm still hanging out at a, at a yellow light. 
My answer is no, but I am still happy with the guys that they've been able to get over the past couple of days. It's, it's a not, start. Yeah, it's a start. It's not like you just take Michael Riley Ducker from tight end you, like Dylan said over the break. It's like you not. It's not like you just get the number one overall kicker in the country. And you know, I'm pumped about. Michael Riley Ducker committing. I mean, I've I've been high on him since we talked about him about a month ago. It's like they're they're they hopefully will will turn out to be some really talented players, but like I expect these numbers to go up. I expect Auburn to be getting some more four four stars. I'd like to see Auburn finish this class with a five star. It's probably not going to happen, but I'd love to see it because uh, I believe they can recruit to that level. So no, I don't really feel like my opinions changed much because at the end of the day, they're still last in the SEC. I think. Over time, though, Auburn will get their own, and they will rise in the rankings. But as of right now, I'm still sitting at yellow. But it's it's I'm very happy with what they're doing right now. It is a start. At some point, you have to get the spoon out and begin to shovel your way out of the prison cell that is 80th in the country in recruiting, right? right. Dead last at 14. At some point, you have to start digging, okay? This is the beginning of that. And, and, and when I said it's a start, it is a start. And not to say that this recruiting class won't get there. I haven't been saying that. I've just been saying Auburn's in a really bad spot right now. And they're, they're like, there's no way that you can, there's no way that somebody could tell me otherwise these last couple of days before these commitments rolled in that, that, that Auburn was not in a bad spot. They were dead last in the SEC. It was the truth. Does this move me off of a yellow light? No, but I am a lot closer to. We're, we're closer. I shouldn't say a lot closer, but we are closer to to better days because now there's at least momentum, right? But you still have to look at the recruits that, that have committed. Are they recruits that move the needle for Auburn's program? A tight end, which I actually really do. I think Micah, Dulley, I think Micah Riley Ducker does usher in. This was a big commitment. I think Micah Riley Ducker does usher in a new breed of tight end that is a little bit more comfortable and fits a little bit more what Brian Hartson's trying to do. I know that there is an illustrious resume for a lot of these guys already in Auburn's tight end room that are that are have, that were solid pass catchers in high school, but Malzahn didn't use them that way, and none of them have just emerged as just a dog in the tight end room, right? Like this guy's going to be the dude, you know. And you've said several times that they were used rather gimmicky, and that's the truth. Riley Ducker. Is definitely he's got a lot of utility in what Brian Harson wants to do, and I know and and I feel like they're probably really excited about that commitment. But then you go past that, you got a kicker, and he's got he's got an iron leg. It it stinks that we already used Legatron as the nickname for Daniel Carlson. Well, I don't know what we're gonna do for Alex McPherson, but we're gonna have to come up with something because this guy can kick it even further than those guys could. That's great, but still a kicker. And then you go to safety, and it was the number 57 safety in the class of 2022 and Auburn's got already some pretty solid depth at safety right now I would not have pegged that as a position of need at the moment with Amari Harvey and Ladarius Tennyson and Donovan Kaufman all having three four years of eligibility left in college football right so I would not have pegged that Auburn has to start landing four stars at position groups of need like offensive line and defensive line and linebacker and all these other important groups for me to get off the yellow light yeah i will say this really quickly it does not get more kicker-esque a name doesn't than alex mcpherson that's true that's true his brother his brother's playing in the nfl this guy's good this guy could do it too that'd be pretty cool to have two sets of auburn kickers you know have brothers in the league that'd be sick let's take a quick break here you got 30 minutes left of on the line when we come back 
Stay on the line. More of the show when we come back. You're on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Dawn, ESPN 106.7 in Fox Sports Central, Alabama. 30 minutes left in the show. If you want to call in, 334-321-1390. Text line at 334-564-1840. Going back to our Playing the Line segment here, college football 2021 over-under win totals. And we've gone through Alabama, Auburn, UCF, Texas. Those are the four teams that we've gone through this point. Let's see, we've got... Six more lines to get through before the end of the show, my man. All right, let's get it. Let's get after it. All right, here we go. Over-under win totals for 2021. These are according to Bavada, Michigan, set at 7.5. This very well could be the end of the line for Jim Harbaugh. Give me the under. Really? Give me the under. I went under. I would have thought you might have gone over there. No, well, see, here's the reason, Noah, and you're not going to like this. I don't like a lot of teams, right? There's a lot of underlying Does bias. your flow chart work for over-under totals? I don't know, does it? <laughs> Let's see. Um, are you an SEC team? But then you'd pick the over for every SEC team, but that's not possible. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, let's see. Athlon has them going 7-5, and 5-4. Five, five and four. PFF's got them at about seven wins. Let's see. They do bring back Ronnie Bell. They bring back nine starters on a defense that gave up 34.5 points per game. But look at the offense. What are we looking at? Three returning starters. Mm-hmm. Not that good. I was, uh, that's why I said, what are Not we looking at? Because I couldn't, exactly. see, a, Nothing's I couldn't there. see a lot of highlighted names. Exactly. Uh, two and four. Let's see who they beat. They beat Mich- Minnesota on the road and then Rutgers in overtime last season. Woo. They don't have a quarterback. They got a defense coming back that was terrible. Uh, yeah, I feel, I feel after looking at that, I feel pretty comfortable taking the under there. Everything about this team is average. I think they're a better team than they were last year. I think COVID really did affect things for Michigan with the way that the Big Ten handled stuff. And, and Michigan last year, just they weren't prepared when they stepped out on the football field, and it didn't look like it. I think there's a lot of shuffling right now in their coordinator rooms, whether it is on offense or defense. When you look at Athlon, they have two coordinators listed at each on both sides of the ball. And the way that I view that is, similar to how Levi used to say a lot, if you got two quarterbacks, you got no quarterbacks. If you got two coordinators, I don't think you have a coordinator. Dude, right now, there's stinks. there's too many there's too many hands in the cookie jar at, at Michigan right now. I think what they have on their roster, if this was Michigan starting out with Jim Harbaugh, like backing up four or five years ago, I think you see a nine win Michigan team. But for some reason, things are stale right now in Ann Arbor, and everything about this team is average except for two players on this defense, which is Aiden Hutchinson at edge and Dax Hill at free safety. There's a lot of uncertainty at quarterback. You really don't know a whole lot about Cade McNamara or if it's going to be Alan Bowman from Texas Tech. You don't know a whole lot about either of these quarterbacks. Also, just shifting around, shifting in the sands when when it comes to offensive schemes. Also, even on defense as well, because last year's defense was horrendous. It was a disaster. 34.5 points per game. That's not Michigan football. And they might have a whole-scale turnover to a 3-4 scheme. This just feels so much like 2012 Auburn. Now, do I think it goes to that degree? No. But I, I don't think that they hit the over on seven and a half. Yeah. I, I think that they lose they lose five games at least and go to seven and five. All right, before I completely write this team off and say that they finished six in the Big Ten East, let's go through their schedule real quick because uh, the more I'm looking at this uh, on uh, this Athlon magazine, the more I'm thinking, man, this team stinks. Uh, let's, let's, go, let's go through real quick. Western Michigan, that's a win. Washington is questionable. 
because Washington's bringing back is bringing back a lot of production, and they're in some top twenty fives. I believe they were in ESPN's preseason top twenty five. They've got the pedigree. I'm gonna say that's a, that's a fifty fifty game. Northern Illinois is a win. Rutgers is a win. At Wisconsin is a loss. At Big ne- loss. At Nebraska should be interesting. I even think that's a win. I think that is a I think that is a win. Let's count that as a win. Northwestern at home. I think that's a win. Northwestern's not bringing anything back from that team last year. They've got like six total returning starters both sides of the ball. These are the types of years that Pat Fitzgerald's teams typically take a step back Mm -hmm. because they need experience to thrive last year was the experience northwestern squad at michigan state i really like their quarterback that they're bringing in from temple they lost at home to michigan state last season i think that that's a loss it's on the road it's possible uh indiana at home i think that's a loss because i think indiana is a better team at penn state i think penn state is going to bounce back somewhat this season i think that could potentially be a loss at maryland i think is a win and then you get ohio state at home don't sleep on maryland man i think they could be a i think they could be better this year year two of talia mike loxley's really getting established there were some moments last year for maryland so excluding the maryland game that's only five games there that i'm looking at that i have as bona fide wins and then everything else is either a solid loss or a game that michigan should not be favored in but if you give them the maryland game that's six games so i think i think yeah you could comfortably say that they go seven and five like athlon has and say that it's under seven and a half wins so i i think taking the under there is i feel comfortable doing that is that enough to keep the sharks away is Michigan looking for a new coach in next offseason? I think they are. I think this is it. I think, yeah, I think this is this is the year. You had COVID to be able to say it's going to be all right. But then again, didn't they, restru- didn't they restructure his contract? Yeah, so they like, did. He got like an extension. He did get an extension, didn't he? Weird. But it's based off, I think a lot of it is like incentive-based too. Like he does have to hit certain, he does have to hit certain standards. And I don't know if 7-5 and five hits that standard. It definitely, I think, I, it, based on what I remember, it makes it a little bit easier for Michigan to be able to walk away. It was an extension for him, but it makes it a little bit easier, I think, for Michigan to walk away if they're not successful. LSU, eight and a half. Uh, under. Ooh. Under. I took the over, basically because I had to make the decision about which team I like more between Texas A&M and LSU. You used a flow chart. Well, yeah, but not not in the way that you do. You say which team you like more. I, I, I meant which team I think is better when I said that, but... And I think LSU is going to be better than Texas A&M this year because I, th- I think when you look at their top-end talent, it's better than A&M's top-end talent. I trust their quarterback situation, even though they don't know who it is yet. I think they'll have a much better quarterback than anybody that A&M will put on the field this year. Of course, A&M's got the edge on defense, but I do think LSU's defensive backs make this defense – I think they bounce back just enough for this offense to win a couple more games than they would have last year mm-hmm. i look at their schedule i break it down i think they beat ucla mcneese state central michigan mississippi state so they're off to 4-0 i think they lose to auburn 4-1 they'll beat kentucky on the road that puts them at 5-1 i think they lose to florida at home you're not sitting at 5-2 beat Ole miss on the road you're 6-2 you lose to alabama on the road now you're 6-3 win your next two games against arkansas and ulm you're 8-3 going into the a&m game and i think you beat a&m because there's a little bit more in the tank offensively for LSU this season than there was last season. I think there's going to be a whole lot more certainty about what th- what things are going on on the offensive side of the ball. I don't think you're going to have the trio of quarterbacks this year. I think, it, barring injury, it's going to be one quarterback this year, and that should help this team out a lot compared to what was happening to them last year because they, they held on to T.J. Finley for way too long last year based off of how he performed against the better teams that he faced, like A&M, where – LSU only scored seven points I think that changes this year and LSU gets to nine and three that eight and a half line 
man, that is tough. I think there are a lot of 50-50 games on the schedule to where yeah. I don't see this team dramatically improving off of a 500 record last season. I mean, to they where could they, lose to Ole Miss. They get to right. So I think that UCLA game is one to look at. Auburn is one to look at. At Kentucky, if they have a quarterback, is one to look at. Florida, Ole Miss, Alabama, and then A&M, if A&M does figure out their quarterback situation as well. Again, that's saying if, but there are a lot of there are a lot of 50-50 games on the schedule where I would not be comfortable saying that they win 9 of 12. You, you feel me? Like especially, oh, 100%. Especially with this defense. And I know that they've still got definitely got talent on the back end. It's just the fact that that talent was burned so badly. It's like, how, how talented is it going to be with a new coordinator? This made me feel gross because you've heard how I've talked about LSU. Right. For me to finally have to commit and say that LSU was going to be 9-3. and three, But the thing is, not everybody in the SEC West can be bad. And I was like, all right, who's going to be worse, A&M or LSU? And I feel a lot more confident. I think you would agree with that. You think A&M is going to be worse than LSU? I think they'll be on the same level. Uh, right now, I have I have a really hard time going one way or the other. And and I don't foresee two eight and four teams in the SEC. I don't think third place in the SEC West. I meant in the SEC West. Was that? I don't I don't think there are going to be two eight and four teams in the SEC West tied for third. I think one of those teams at least gets to nine wins. Typically, that's how it how it goes down. Typically, mm-hmm. you've got Alabama or the team that's best in the SEC West going like eleven and one. And then, or or twelve and zero, whichever one it is. And then the second best teams, like ten and two, maybe nine and three with two losses in SEC play, something like that. The third place team might be nine and three as well. And then the fourth place team is typically eight and four. Sometimes even the fifth place team is eight and four. And I think that's kind of what you're looking at this year at the SEC West. More teams will be above average than there were last year yeah I'm, I'm I'm not saying it just to disagree with you I genuinely think that both of these teams have things that are going for them and then things that are not going for them and I think at the end of the day it evens out in my mind to where they're both on similar playing yeah. playing fields like one of them has a really good defense one of them doesn't one of them has a really good offense one of them had a decent offense last year but they've got a lot of question marks moving in specifically at the quarterback spot so I mean depending on how things shake out obviously one team will be better than the other at the end of the year but in my mind right now I'm with you. They're Even. they're like the same team, but different issues. You're right. Or same trajectory, different issues. Yeah, that's good. That's a good way to say. Let's it. head out to Los Angeles. USC over under eight and a half. Whoo! Oh, I like this UCLA, this USC team. I like UCLA too. Almost <laughs> UCLA. I've said that a lot this offseason. Eight and a half. Keaton Slovis with these receivers. Mwah! Match made in heaven in Pac-12 football. Man, this USC team is going to be fun to watch. Over under eight and a half. I went over. There are four games on USC schedule that I believe to be 50-50 games. I take those to be Utah, who's now got Charlie Brewer, the the ex-Baylor quarterback over there, and a lot of returning talent. I think Utah gets a little bit better than what we saw from them last year, which was a 3-2 and season. Utah will be a 50-50 game. Notre Dame will be a 50-50 game. No, Arizona don't, State. don't kid yourself. <laughs> don't, no. Arizona State and, U, and UCLA. And you're saying a 50-50 game that uh, – you're, you're saying that won't be a 50-50 game because of Notre Dame. But um, I'm, I'm going to say that those four games right there are could go either way, pushes for me. And I think USC can go – based on those parameters, can USC go 1-3 and three in those games to get to 9-3? and three? Yes. Yes, they can. With Keaton Slovis at quarterback, with those receivers like London Drake, this team – this team very well should get to 9-3. It's a weak Pac-12. Okay, so now that I'm looking at the schedule, I'll say this. I think USC is a better team than San Jose State, Stanford, Washington State, Oregon State, Colorado, Utah, Arizona. Not Notre Dame? California, UCLA, 
and BYU. And the only reason I won't say Notre Dame is I do think you, uh, USC is going to be a better team. I just don't want to be obnoxious. But like, <laughs> you could see this team win ten or eleven games if they get on fire. So yeah, I'll take the over. I, I feel definitely saying think that. I definitely think that USC's offense is better than Notre Dame's. The defense, no. Notre Dame's defense will be better than USC's. But we're about to talk about Notre Dame in a moment. And Notre Dame's offense, <laughs> I actually have some real concerns with that. They only bring back like two starters. That there, there's going to be some real problems on the Notre Dame offense. And we'll, I'll break that down schematically in a few minutes. Sir, are you taking the over? Yes, I will take the over. Glad I could bring you on to this side. Glad I, I, I think USC is going to be a really fun team. That schedule watch. looks easy, man. They're a whole lot easier to root for now that they don't have Pete Carroll and it's not the dominant run that they were having just for that like two or three seasons of the 2000s. It's a little bit more fun now, but Tennessee over and under is six. So just do they make a bowl game or, or not? not? Yep. I think Tennessee makes a bowl game. I'll say I'll say over or right at six. Well, it's really not do they make a bowl game or, or not. It's do they miss a bowl game. It, it, really, the question that you have to ask yourself is, do they miss a bowl game or do you trust this team to find a way to win a game that they are not going to be favored in? Which of those do you think is more likely? I took the under because I can't choose six. For the record, Can I, I push? No, you can't. Tadgummit. For the record, I think Tennessee goes 6-6 six and six this year. I do think they go to a bowl game. I think they beat South Carolina. I think they beat Vanderbilt. I believe they will go 6-6. Six and six. But if, you, if I have to choose over or under here at 6, that's why I hate this line, I don't feel comfortable walking the tightrope that is Tennessee yeah. football with Josh Hoipel, who should have a much improved offense, but his track record with defense is horrendous. And so I don't feel comfortable walking that tightrope in the SEC East, where I think that there are several teams that are up and coming, like Kentucky and Missouri, Florida's still going to be better than Tennessee, and of course Georgia's much better than them. When, and they have to play Ole Miss from the West. That That's their other game other than Alabama. Tough schedule. I don't feel comfortable saying that it's more likely that Tennessee will go 7-5 and five versus 5-7. and seven. I actually think it's more likely that they trip up against Vanderbilt or South Carolina when they need that win the most because we've seen that consistently. Yeah. This Tennessee team consistently disappoints. That's why I went under. If I could push, I would. But 100%. I, but I, I, I'm, I agree with you. I think I, I know I said over initially because I thought I could say, yeah, they but get I to six over. wins. But no, 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 no. No, what I was saying is over meaning like I think they get to six wins. Yeah. So I was like, can I push? No, I can't. Well, in that case... I would think it's more likely. If I were betting on this, I think it's more likely that they miss a bowl game. 25 guys left the program since last October. Including me, actually. I was part of the Tennessee football program. <laughs> I left as well. 25 players. It's the most transfers out of anybody else. They only have seven returning starters across both sides of the ball, two on offense. It's going to be tough to piece these things together. And then on the other side of that, saying that they get to six wins means that we think that they are going to beat all of the teams that they should beat. Who's to say that Pittsburgh doesn't beat them in week two? Who's to say that South Carolina doesn't pull an upset? The, those teams have a lot to play for under their first-year head coaches. Who's to say that those guys don't buy in and actually find a way to trip them up and South Carolina is instead playing in the Birmingham Bowl instead of Tennessee, right? Ooh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm just telling you, like, it's who's to say that like we actually feel comfortable enough to say that Tennessee's going to go 7-5 and five and win all the games that they should? Everybody and their mother left that program. Dylan left that program, actually, in the spring. <laughs> we all left. Let's take a quick break here. When we come back, I'll tell you why Notre Dame might be worse than advertised Woo-hoo. this football season. We'll be back. You're listening to On The Line. Wrapping up the Thursday edition of On The Line. Before we do, we're going to take a listen to What's On TV tonight. NBA Finals on the docket. A lot of great stuff coming on this evening. Let's roll the TV guide. 
Hey everybody, it's Noah Gardner with What's On Tonight. We all know those people who know the name, artist, and all the lyrics to every song ever made. They were meant for this show. Beat Shazam is on Fox at 7. Some movie selections for tonight. You can take the girl out of Alabama, but you can't take Alabama out of the girl. Reese Witherspoon stars in Sweet Home Alabama at 7.30 on Freeform. Ride Along 2 is on FX at 7. In live sports, it's Game 2 of the NBA Finals tonight. The Phoenix Suns jump down to a 1-0 lead over the Milwaukee Bucks with Game 2 up tonight at 8 on ABC. Thursday, MLB Baseball is on ESPN at 7 with the Philadelphia Phillies at the Chicago Cubs. Try and outspell these kids. The finals of the 93rd Scripps National Spelling Bee is on ESPN 2 at 7. If you're missing football, relive a classic from Florida's 2006 National Championship season as the Gators outlast rival Florida State at 7 on ESPN Classic. I'm Noah Gardner, and that's what's on TV tonight. Wrapping up the Thursday edition of On the Line, Noah Gardner and Lance Dahl with you. Lance, still talking about our college football 2021 over-under win totals. These provided by Bovada. That's where we got these. We're on to Notre Dame. And I teased, I'm going to tell everybody why I think Notre Dame's going to be a little bit worse than maybe people would originally think. Notre Dame's over-under total set at nine games. And I think that's pretty, <laughs> I think that's pretty adequate when I look at them. But this was a really tough one. I took the under, but this was a really tough one for me. N- mainly because Notre Dame has not lost more than three games since 2016 in a season. The last time they did it was 2016 when they went 4-8. and eight. Before that... Sean Kaiser. And, and then in 2015, it took Brian Kelly... I mean, it, it took Brian Kelly to about 2015 to have Notre Dame established. And since then, they've really been consistently a 10-win team. Before that, they were going like 8-5 and five every year. But he finally got the program going, hit 2015, and they have been a 10-win team like every year except for 2016. So it was really hard for me to kind of say, oh yeah, this team's, this team's going to take a step back this year and not hit that mark. But the offense only returns two starters. Jack Cohn's their quarterback. I haven't been super high up on this dude. This is the ex-Wisconsin starter, but he hasn't been a starter since 2019. And while, yes, he was efficient in 2019, you look at like route tree heat maps of that year for him, and PFF's got some of those. You, you look at it and say, while he was efficient, he really struggled to push the ball down the field. And we've seen this at Auburn. We've seen this all across college football. The more and more that that passing game creeps cr- closer and closer to the line of scrimmage, the tougher and tougher it is to move the football down the field because opposing teams can bottle you up. It's a little bit easier to simplify things on defense and to scheme for that. And with only two returning starters coming back on that offense, I'm thinking that this is going to be a much simpler offense that Notre Dame is going to put on the field and it's going to be playing a lot closer to the line of scrimmage, a lot easier to defend. It's going to take them a lot more plays to move the ball down the field, which means a lot more opportunity for mistakes to happen. It's a lot harder to move the field when it takes you 12, 13 play drives. And then you're looking at a team that only is averaging 24, 25 points a game, right? Right. And this defense lost a lot of talent. Honestly, the best things that the, the things that made them good last year, they lost that. Like Awusa Kamora, I'm messing that up pretty bad. And he's a Cleveland Brown draftee. Koromoa, Awusu Koromoa, leaving the Notre Dame program to go on to the NFL. I mean, they lost the things that made them best on defense. I'm not sure it's a 19 points allowed per game unit this year. I look at their schedule. I see some games they can lose. Notre Dame, you or not Notre Dame, North Carolina, USC. There's a handful of games on this schedule that they can lose that could drop them even further than that. I'm going to say under. I'll say they go eight and four this year. 
I'm going to take my obnoxious bias out of this for a second. Thank you. And I think that whenever you look at this schedule, I'm going to say this and it's going to sound dramatic and obnoxious and biased, but like there are a lot of games on this schedule that they can lose. Cincinnati, Wisconsin. And the reason I, the reason I say State. that is because you're not going to win every single 12 to 7 game against Louisville at home. You're not going to win every single 27 to 13 game at home against Duke, which by the way that game was really really close until late in the fourth. You're not going to win every single uh you're not going to win every single game against teams like Boston College where you go on the road and eke out a win. You're not going to do that, especially breaking in a new quarterback and only two starters returning on offense. Kyron Williams is not going to carry this team to 10 wins. That's not happening. Let's look at the schedule really it's like, quick. Do you feel confident enough that Jack okay, Cohn can do that? No, I don't think they can. I think they lose to Florida State week one. Cincinnati, uh, Wisconsin could be potential losses. USC, North Carolina. Cincinnati, Virginia Tech, North Carolina. It's a lot of tough games, man. It really is. That's it for the Thursday edition of On the Line, The Drive with Bill Cameron. Coming up after us from 4 to 6 here on ESPN 106.7 at Fox Sports Central Alabama. We'll see you tomorrow, same time, same place. You know where to find us.